You guys better be careful because you sound like more than 250 people in this room singing. We're going to get in trouble. Kids can go ahead and be dismissed for Children's Church. I know there's a couple folks visiting with us this morning. We want to welcome you. Good to see you. I think I've met most of you, not all of you. But we are glad that you are here to worship with us today. Um, if you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand real quick, and Tim can slip one in your hand. We've got a couple in the back. We'd love to give you one. Please open your Bibles this morning to Psalm 46, the 46th Psalm today. In times like this, um, our nation is faced, and our communities are faced, and families are faced with a lot of uncertainty. We don't really know what tomorrow looks like, and that freaks a lot of people out. This has disrupted life as we know it. It's hard to find toilet paper. There's no March Madness brackets to fill out this year. And there's a lot of fear. Many people are afraid. Afraid of the unknown, afraid of life changing, afraid of death. How should Christians respond in times like this? How should we think about events like a viral pandemic? How should we feel? When we are faced with these kinds of disruptions, what should we do in times like this? Well, I, I would love to remind you this morning, brothers and sisters, that we are not the first believers to face the threat of illness sweeping through a society. There are examples in every century in terms of how the church faced illness and plague. And I read a lot of church history this week and was encouraged by it. Um, and I was aware of some of those stories already. But something that was striking to me was the response of a man named Martin Luther, the reformer in the 1500s. We think of Martin Luther as a man of courage who nailed his 95 thesis to the door in Wittenberg and sparked a reformation. We think of Martin Luther standing before the council at the Deed of Worms and saying, here I stand, I can go no further. He would not renounce his writings and his teachings. But many do not know about his courage in 1527 when the plague appeared in his city, in Wittenberg, and it wreaked havoc on the citizens, and it was nasty. It was deadly. We have not reached a point yet in Douglas County where you can walk outside and smell death. But that was what was happening in Germany in 1527, and because of that, many people fled. They evacuated. But Martin and his wife, Catherine Van Bora, whom he called Katie, they stayed. They decided to stay in their town and in their home, and they ministered not only to the spiritual needs of their friends and neighbors, but they ministered to the physical needs of the sick. Martin Luther wrote this in a letter to another pastor named Johann Hess, who was seeking his counsel. Luther wrote this, I shall ask God mercifully to protect us, then I shall fumigate, help purify the air, administer medicine, and take it. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order to not become contaminated and thus perchance inflict and pollute others and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. If God should wish to take me, he will surely find me. And I have done what he has expected of me. And so I am not responsible for either my own death or the death of others. If my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person but will go freely as stated above. See, this is such a God-fearing faith because it is neither brash nor foolhardy and does not tempt God. This was the perspective that Luther had. Simple trust in a sovereign God 
wise precautions when necessary, and a willingness to stay and to serve. And I think Luther and his wife helpfully model for us a realistic view of pandemic and of a confident trust in God. It was actually in this exact context, against the backdrop of this plague, in addition to facing opposition from the Roman Catholic Church, that Martin Luther reflected on the words of Psalm 46. And as he read that song, he wrote his own. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he, amid the flood of mortal ills, prevailing. Do you catch that? Mortal ills prevailing. Deadly disease. In the midst of all of that, God is a mighty fortress. How could Luther and his wife care for the sick in a time like this instead of fleeing? What was it that shaped their perspective? What was the source of their courage? What gave them strength? They worshiped God. They knew who God was. And he's the same God that we worship today, the God of Scripture, the God of Psalm 46. Listen to the word of the Lord this morning. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is is our fortress. Lord, this is your word to us for such a time as this. Lord, help us to believe it and to live in light of it. Amen. The Psalms are beautiful. They're beautiful in their poetry, and they're rich in their theology. But the Psalms are also intensely practical because they resonate with the experiences of the saints in every age. We're really not sure exactly when or why this psalm was written. We could sort of speculate. But that's part of the beauty of it, that we don't know the exact circumstances that this sprung out of. And it makes it so fitting and applicable for Christians in every age. In the psalms, we learn from others who faced opposition and disaster and even suffering and danger. And they sang their way through those trials in faith. The 46th psalm offers to us familiar words. I hope they're familiar to many of you. But they are timely words for a society that is facing uncertainty and disruption and fear. The singular theme for this song is confidence in the powerful presence of God. We see this in verse 1 of Psalm 46. He says that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. 
He returns to this theme like a refrain in verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And again, he says the same thing in verse 11. Confidence in the powerful presence of God is the backbone that runs through this psalm. Historically, this truth has always been the source of confidence for God's people. I mean, think about it. God's presence with his people in the wilderness meant protection, and it meant provision, and it meant guidance. It meant success against their enemies. You remember what Moses said in Exodus 33, Oh Lord, if you do not go with, up with us, then, then we won't go at all. Don't send us unless you go with us. In 2 Kings chapter 6, Elisha prayed that God would open the eyes of his fearful servant so that he would see the armies of heaven surrounding them on the hillside. In the New Testament, we see Jesus in the boat with his disciples. When the storm rages, because Jesus is there, they are safe. And when they fear, he asks them, why do you still have such little faith? Jesus commissioned these same disciples before he ascended into heaven, and he promised them, lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. The logic of Paul in Romans is that if God is for us, then who can be against us? This truth for God's people in every time and every age is that we can be confident in the powerful presence of God. If he is with us, if he is our refuge and fortress, we need not fear Psalm 46 shows this to be the case in three stanzas, sort of three sections. The first is verses 1 through 3. shows us we can be confident in the powerful presence of God in times of natural catastrophe. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. The declaration of this psalmist is, first of all, theological. He's making a theological statement. God is. And then he reasons from there. See, there's really two ways of looking at the world and looking at God. You can interpret God through the lens of your circumstances, or you can start by looking to God and then evaluate and understand all your circumstances in light of who he is and in light of what he says. And the psalmist does the latter. He starts with God. God is. God is. That's the spring, the fountainhead from which the rest of this psalm flows. God is. And he reasons from there. He says first that God is our refuge. A refuge is a place of safety, a place of shelter in a time of storm or in a time of war. And God is a refuge for those who trust in him. He's a refuge for his children. He's a shelter for those whom he loves. And there is no other shelter that is adequate. In Psalm 20, verse 7, it says, Some trust in chariots. Some trust in horses. You can say some trust in masks and hand sanitizer. Some trust in governments. Some trust in a healthcare system. Some trust in their own efforts, whether that be quarantine or social distancing. But the psalmist says, we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. There's a place for all those other things, even horses and chariots, hand sanitizer and and all the rest. But our trust, our trust is in God. Only God is able to really protect and preserve us. He alone is our 
refuge. And in a time like this, that's the song we need to sing as believers to to proclaim with triumphant faith, God is our refuge. But the psalmist says he's also our strength. God is our strength. And the good news about God being our strength is that he has no lack of power to supply. He's an infinite source of strength for those who are weak. God is more powerful than any armies. Ask the Egyptians. When they tried to follow the children of Israel through the parted waters of the Red Sea, they learned that God has power. God's more powerful than any stone wall. Ask the residents of Jericho. God is more powerful than any giant with military training. Ask the Philistines. God is more powerful than any king and kingdom and empire. Ask Nebuchadnezzar. He learned the hard way. God is more powerful than Satan. God is more powerful than death itself. Jesus has the keys as the risen Savior. And God is infinitely more powerful than any virus. And this perfect power, this strength, is extended to us as God gives us sustaining grace. When we are weak, when we feel small and frail, God is our source of strength. Isaiah 41.10, God declares, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. My friends, in time of danger, we draw near to God as our refuge. And in time of weakness, we draw near to him to receive the strength that only he can provide. God is our refuge and our strength. There's a third description here of God. He's also our help. He is a very present help in trouble. This points to two things. First of all, to his faithfulness. God is always present. To say that he is a very present help in trouble means that he is eager. He is always near. He is at the ready to supply what it is that we need. You will never turn to God and be surprised to find that he's gone. He's not like Baal in the Old Testament. You remember that, that showdown on top of Mount Carmel? And Elisha mocked the false prophets. And maybe you guys should, should yell a little louder. Maybe he's, you know, in the bathroom. Maybe he's asleep taking a nap. Why don't you yell a little louder? Maybe he's just gone on a trip and he'll be back later. See, Elijah knew that God is always present, always ready to help. He does not depart and take a break. He is always at the ready, a very present help in times of trouble. It shows us God's faithfulness, but it also shows us his compassion. You see, God is not only strong and powerful, he is also eager to help us. He uses his strength and his power on the behalf of those whom he loves. God hears our prayer and he considers our need and he delights to provide for us. He is faithful and compassionate, a very present help. This God, the psalmist says, is not just a refuge. He says he's our refuge. You see, he's not just talking about an abstract doctrine here, but a personal conviction. God is our refuge and strength. What a privilege it is to know this God. What a privilege it is to belong to this God, the God of all power. 
What a gift of grace to know that we are his and he is ours. This has always been the hope of Christians throughout the ages. The Heidelberg Catechism, written only a couple hundred years before you and I were born, opens with this question. What is your only hope in life and death? And the answer comes, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He is our refuge. We are his and he is ours. And the psalmist knows this, that God is his refuge, not simply as a doctrinal theory, but as a personal, experiential reality. He doesn't know just about God being a refuge. He knows God as his refuge. And it is in light of this truth, because of who God is, because of what God is like, because of our relationship with him and his power and compassion and faithfulness towards us, it's because of this that the psalmist can say, therefore, we will not fear. We will not fear. The psalmist has determined to trust God exclusively, to trust God completely, to trust God both now. He is our refuge and to trust God tomorrow. We will not fear, even tomorrow, no matter what comes. He is resolved to trust in God no matter what happens. This is faith in the powerful presence of God. And this confidence is available to you. You can sing this song too. The specific context for this confidence in verses 2 through 3 is confidence in the face of natural disaster. He talks here about the earth and the mountains and the sea, about earthquakes and tidal waves, landslides. The mention of the earth and the mountains and the sea includes really the scope of the whole world. He's saying, listen, even if everything falls apart, we will not fear. There is no catastrophe that warrants panic if God, this God, is our refuge and strength and is our help. At every moment. Now, does this mean that nothing bad is going to happen? No. No, bad things do happen. And they will happen. And the psalmist here is even anticipating that they happen. What he's saying is, listen, I am prepared. I am ready for these things to happen because I know God. And he is my refuge and strength. And he is with me. The fearless faith that God wants to see in us right now is not just being naive. I think sometimes people hear the statement, we will not fear, and they say, you're just sticking your head in the sand. You don't really get how serious this situation is, whether it's a virus or some other situation. You know, threat of nuclear war, domestic terrorism, an economy collapsing, whatever it may be. Say, you don't really realize how bad this is, and your fearfulness just shows that you're naive. You're just burying your head in the sand. But the psalmist is not saying, we will not fear, because I don't think it's really going to get that bad. This is just the flu. That's not his logic. No, it, it might get really bad. But so what if it does? There's a touch of defiance in this song. Defiance with a smile. Even if the mountains and the sea and the earth and all of it slides away, we will not fear. Not because we don't think it's going to get bad, but because we know that God is with us. He is our refuge and strength. And even if everything else falls apart, if everything else changes, if everything else is taken away, God never changes. That's the source of his confidence. 
Even if things do get bad, friends, I, I don't think that this situation is going to be as bad as the bubonic plague or an outbreak of cholera. I don't think it is. But if it does, that still doesn't change this reality, that God is our refuge and strength and a very present help in time of trouble. The psalmist proclaims this truth even in the face of natural disaster. But in verses 4 through 7, he does it also in times of political conflict. He speaks of nations raging, and he talks about the city where God is. You see, there's more than one way in which the world can fall apart. In addition to natural disasters, we also face the uncertainties of war, terrorism, oppressive governments, political movements. What about that? Well, the psalmist says, even though the world is falling apart, the kingdom of God is not. There's a little play on words here. We see that the mountains, in verse 2, might be moved into the sea. But you know what won't be moved? Verse 4 and 5. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She, the city of God, will not be moved. Mountains may be moved, but not the city of God. Why? Because God is in the midst of her. God is in the midst of her. Verse 7, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The original singers of this song would have sung it uh, thinking about Zion on their way traveling up to Jerusalem to worship. Jerusalem was the city in the Old Testament where God's presence was manifested in the temple. And in that city, there was a little spring, the Gihon. And residents of Jerusalem channeled that spring into various pools and collected water. And that would have been a key source of, of survival for them in times of siege. Enemies would come, they would board up the, the, the gates to the wall, and they would hunker down, but they had a water supply. And that was an essential source of salvation for any, uh, of any uh, city in those times. You had to have a water supply. The psalmist here refers to God being in the city. And God himself, in a sense, is the one who provides this sustaining source of life. I think the psalmist here has in mind another river, not just the Gihon in Jerusalem. I think he's reminiscing about Eden. I think he he's, has in mind here the river that is promised in the kingdom to come. This river that we see in the book of Ezekiel. This river we see in the book of Revelation that symbolizes God's provision of life. The constant refreshment of his grace. This is what brings joy to God's people, those who dwell with him. This is what, to use the words of this psalm, makes us glad in the city of God. You see, the city of Lawrence can fall apart. The city of God remains. Our citizenship is in a kingdom that is not of this world. That's where we belong. That's where we're at home. And God is in our midst. Just as the presence of God dwelt in the temple in the Old Testament, so today the Spirit of Christ tabernacles among us. We are the temple of the living God, and God is here. He is in our midst, and we will not be moved. We may die, but we will not be moved. <laughs> the worst thing that can happen is our bodies stop functioning, but they can't take Christ from us. Nothing can. Nothing can take that hope from us. And this is true. God brings joy to his people as he dwells in their midst. That's the case in the Old Testament as he preserved Israel. That's the case as Jesus is building his church in the New Testament. And that will be the case 
in the kingdom that is established in the age to come, when God literally dwells in the midst of his people. We talked about the conclusion of Revelation this morning in our Sunday school class. When God is in our midst, we will not be moved. And this is true whether it's the blind forces of nature, earthquakes and and landslides, and it's also true when it's human enemies, when it's these foreign nations that threaten. You know, the coronavirus is this week's news. Last week it was Iran, and next week it'll be who knows what. There are concerns in our country about extremists within and enemies without, but human powers are no challenge to the God of the universe. Look at verse 6. He says, The nations rage... The kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, the earth melts. This language reminds me of the second psalm, Psalm 2. You can turn there if you want, a few pages back. I'll read it for you. Psalm 2, verse 1 says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart. And cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath. And terrify them in his fury. God's not intimidated or impressed. When the powers of this world flex their muscles and defy him. He laughs. He laughs. He speaks to them. Verse 6. He utters his voice and the earth melts. King Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler of Babylon, the most powerful empire in the world that the world had ever known to that point, he learned this lesson the hard way. Daniel 4.35, he wrote after learning his lesson, he says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? See, here's the bottom line. God is completely sovereign over the nations. He speaks and the earth melts. And this God, the psalmist reminds us in verse 7, is with us. And his presence makes all the difference. If God is with us, then the threats and attacks of the nations need not reduce us to fear. The truth is that God's sovereignty gives us courage. J.C. Ryle was an Anglican bishop in Liverpool, across the pond. And in 1866, there was an outbreak of cholera. Again, the church was facing disease, sweeping through and killing many people. Ryle wrote this, Vestries may fail to do their duty. Governments may be slow to act, hospitals may be overcrowded, and doctors may fail, but the Lord reigns, and we have no cause to despair. The Lord reigns. He is sovereign. And so even if all these things are happening, we can acknowledge that. We're not being naive. We're being realistic, but there is no cause to despair because we know who God is. We know who God is. The Lord reigns, period. That's it. That's what we need to know. And the psalmist celebrates this truth in verses 4 through 7 of this song. But then he gets to an even bigger perspective as he zooms out in verses 8 through 11. He gives us the reality that we can be confident in the powerful presence of God in view of his eternal kingdom. In view of his eternal kingdom, verse 8 through 11. Come behold the works of the Lord. 
how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. He starts off this section, come behold the works of the Lord. Let me just encourage you to do that this week, to behold the works of the Lord. We spend a lot of time watching the news, reading the news, listening to the news. But the author here calls us to come and behold, to pay attention to what God has done. Because God has done some amazing things. He speaks here about how God has brought desolations on the earth. How he makes wars cease, how he breaks the bow and shatters the spear, how he burns the chariots with fire. I think the psalmist likely had in mind here again the military victories of God in the Old Testament. Remember the armies of Pharaoh. At that point in history, the most mobile and powerful military in the world, God smashed him. The water came crashing down. And as dawn broke the next morning, the children of Israel saw their bodies washing up on the sea, and they worshiped. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. You see this in the book of Joshua as God drives out the nations before the Israelites with signs and wonders. The Old Testament reads like a highlight reel of God's victories. He is truly the Lord of hosts. You see that term over and over again in this psalm, the Lord of armies. And what he has done in the past, listen to this, gives us a hint of what he's going to do in the future. God's not done. He's not done triumphing over his enemies. Do you remember that promise of Psalm 2? That he will break them with a rod of iron? He's going to crush his enemies? He has set his king in Zion, a king who will rule Psalm 110 says of this coming king, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgments on the nations. Psalm 46 says it this way. If you look in verse 10, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted. I will show my glory. I will render judgment. I will bring about peace. But the process is going to be anything but peaceful. There's going to be shattering. There's going to be burning. God will be exalted. This is the promise of the Old Testament. And we find the same hope in the New Testament. Philippians chapter 2 verse 9 says of the resurrected Jesus Christ that therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth And under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The one who breaks the bow and shatters the spear will come again. His purpose is to establish his kingdom, to save his children, to judge his enemies, and to reign in glory. And it is in light of these powerful words, this exhortation comes to be still and know that I am God. Be still. This is a word of rebuke to the raging nations. 
the ones rattling their spears against their shields, to the kings who are plotting and scheming to cast off his yoke. Be still and know that I am God. Cease your rebellion. Stop your raging. Stop resisting and bow the knee. But this is also a word of exhortation, I think, to the troubled heart. Derek Kidner points out the similarity of these words to the words of Jesus Christ on the Sea of Galilee. As Jesus stands in the midst of his troubled disciples and he speaks to the wind and the waves, peace, be still, be still. God speaks to the turmoil in our soul. He reminds us of his power and his glory and his purpose that he is executing, that he will be exalted. And he tells us, be still, be still and know that I am God. The knowledge of this God and his power and his purposes to establish his kingdom and exalt his son, that truth ought to instill peace into our frantic hearts. Be still. Know that he is God. Know that he is exalting his son, Jesus Christ. And once again, the psalmist concludes with this reality. The Lord of hosts is with us. A God of power and authority. He is the God of Jacob, verse 11. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Jacob, that Old Testament saint who is far from perfect. The God of Jacob is the one who is a God of grace, who chooses the unlikely, the second-born, the ones with character issues, and he redeems them. He makes promises to them and keeps promises to them. He is the sovereign, covenant-keeping God. The God of Jacob is our fortress, and he is with us. Therefore, the psalmist says, we will not fear. If you don't know Christ today, then let me just explain to you that you have a much bigger problem than the coronavirus. To use a phrase that's often used in kind of a useless way in our culture, you are on the wrong side of history. If you don't know Jesus Christ, if you've not bowed the knee to him, you're on the wrong side of history because Jesus Christ is returning and he will be exalted among the nations. He will be exalted here in the earth. His kingdom will be established and everyone is going to stand before him as he brings righteous judgment upon the earth. And those who are still in their sins, when Jesus shows up here, they will be condemned to an eternal punishment, something far worse than any respiratory infection, something far worse than any economic shutdown. Something far worse than the worst thing you can literally think of that can happen to you in this life. The eternal, unquenchable wrath of God. So if you do not know Jesus Christ today, if this is just your parents' religion, or if this is just something that you've heard about before and like, that's good for other people, let me plead with you today to know this, that Jesus Christ is and will be exalted. And today there's still time for you to bow your knee and to receive the grace that only comes through Christ, to find in him a refuge from the wrath of God, to find in him a shelter from hell, to find in him the help 
the grace, the mercy of salvation that you cannot achieve on your own. You need Christ. You need Jesus. I want to invite you to come to him today, to know that he is God and place your faith in him. Turn from your sin. Turn from your rebellion. Stop raging against him and receive him as your king and your savior. Do not harden your heart today. Repent and believe in the gospel. Look to Jesus and live and live. What about those of you who are Christians? What about us? What must we do as we go from here? Three brief points in conclusion. Number one, let me invite you to faith and not fear. Trust in God's promises. Faith instead of fear. Do not be afraid. I'm guessing most of you are the non-fearful group because you showed up here. And there's not very much social distancing. There's not however many feet between most of us here in this room. And so I think I'm preaching to the choir, but let me say it again. In case things get worse, maybe it'll get really weird, but do not be afraid. A.W. Tozer once wrote that a scared world needs a fearless church. That's what we need today. To look death itself in the eye and smile, say, death, where's your sting? Where's your victory? We're with Jesus and you lose. We don't need to be afraid. Choose faith instead of fear. We have hope of resurrection, so we do not fear death. We, we do not fear loss because, like Paul, we can learn to be content even if we don't have the comforts of this world. We can do that through Christ who strengthens us. We don't need to fear the unknown because we know God. And what is unknown to us was foreknown by him. It was planned and ordained in eternity past. God's really good at being God. He knows what he's doing, and we can trust him, even if we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't need to fear death or loss or the unknown. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So friends, let me invite you to faith and not fear. Fear is infectious. It's a social contagion, not a biological one. But you know what else is infectious? Faith is. That's one of the reasons I wanted to be here with you this morning, to sing with you, to rehearse these truths with you, because when our faith, our, our faith models this joy and courage for one another, we strengthen each other. We're stronger together than we are on our own. God is honored when his people trust him, but the church is also strengthened. Your brothers and sisters are edified and helped when they see your courage, when they see your faith. And you know who else needs to see our faith is the world, because many of them are terrified. This is all they have. And they're realizing now what was true two weeks ago, but they didn't like to think about it, and that's this truth, that everything here can be lost in an instant. This world can slip away. Your health, your money, our culture, society, your job, all of it, our families, our very life and breath, all of it can be lost in an instant. That's always the case, but it's an inconvenient truth that the world doesn't like to think about. Nobody can help but think about it right now. What a great place to be as a people who have hope. We get a chance to show the world what it looks like to smile and to say, God is our refuge and strength. We're not afraid. I mean, we're not being idiots and coughing into each other's mouths on purpose. Like, we're not doing that, okay? But at the same time, we're not afraid. We're not afraid. Sorry, I just have small kids. If you have small kids, you've probably had your mouth coughed in before. Uh, I see some moms out there. You know, you know how it works. 
But let me invite you to faith instead of fear. The world needs to look at us and see that we have a hope, and they need to ask, what is the reason for the hope that is within us? Let's give them something to talk about. Secondly, let me invite you to hope and not despair. There's a little pattern here. You might have picked it up. Faith, hope, and love. That's the three points, if if you're curious. Hope instead of despair. Look to the future and hold on to what is eternal. This is really the secret to joy. We're not looking at what's here primarily. We're looking past it to what's beyond. 1 Peter 1.13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, situations like this are good for us, aren't they? Because they remind us that our lives are not to revolve around what's here. As 1 John 2.17 says, this world is passing away and its desires. But we, according to Hebrews 12, are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It can't be. And that's where our hope is. So as Colossians 3.2 says, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Set your mind on things above. This is hope. This is the opposite of despair. We are his. He loves us, saved us, keeps us, and will bring us safely home. That's our hope. So choose hope instead of despair. And then finally, choose love instead of self-preservation. This applies to grocery shopping, okay? Love instead of self-preservation. We need, this is a time for us to show love for one another in the church and to show love for our neighbors And the lost. Love is sacrificial. It's sacrificial. There may be an opportunity for us to make some real sacrifices in the near future. That's an opportunity to resemble our Heavenly Father, to be imitators of God as beloved children, the one who loved us and sent His Son for us. There may be an opportunity to serve, to bring groceries to someone to give a ride to someone, to visit and offer company to someone who's in isolation, if that's appropriate and safe, to make a phone call, perhaps. There's going to be opportunities to serve, to see what your neighbors need, to know who in the church is struggling because their source of income has been cut off and yours hasn't. There's going to be opportunities to love and serve. Choose love instead of self-preservation. What if things get really bad? What if this becomes a worst-case scenario? Again, if I can just point you to church history, in 260 AD, there was a horrible outbreak. It's called the Plague of Cyprian, and it was famous because it was killing upwards of 5,000 people a day in the Roman Empire. In fact, it almost toppled the Roman Empire. I mean, they could beat all these armies, but then this plague came in and was decimating both its citizens and its military like no foreign power could. The church leader Dionysius wrote this, according to the historian Eusebius. Dionysius writes, Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors, and cheerfully accepting their pains. What's remarkable is that the Christians of that day, there in Alexandria, they ran towards the sick rather than away from them. There's a lot of fear right now that the the health industry is going to be overburdened. We may have an opportunity. I don't know what that would look like, but we may have an opportunity to help, 
to show love, to not fear death or sickness or the pains that come with them, but to show real love, sacrificial love. It's an opportunity to show love for the lost that is only explainable because of the hope we have in Christ. People are scared right now. They're realizing that life in this world is far more fragile than we often realize. They're realizing that we're really not in control like we often like to think we are. And we can nod and say, yep, that's absolutely true. And we can do it with joy, even with a laugh, because we are those who seek a lasting city in the age to come. So we are more than ready to lose anything here in this life, to love others and to serve them and to help them. For us, there's joy. For us, there's faith. For us, there is hope. And we are those who are called to show love. The world needs the gospel right now, my friends. They need it a lot more than they even need a coronavirus vaccine. We may have opportunities to tangibly show love in a physical sense, helping our neighbors, serving them, but we will definitely have opportunity to show love to the world by offering them hope in Jesus Christ. Like Peter said, gold and silver, I have none, but I can offer you Jesus Christ. He offered healing to the lame man and introduced him to Jesus. We have an opportunity to tell people about the one who has conquered and defeated death and the one who is coming again to reign for eternity, the one who will raise us up to new resurrection life, to share in his eternal joy. We can introduce them to Jesus. Consider how you might love the world by sharing Christ with them in such a time as this. Well, it is good for this psalm to be studied and to be analyzed and to be explained. We've done that today. But this psalm was really meant to be sung. If you go back to the the superscript, you see it is to the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, that's a tune probably, a song. This is a song. This was written so that its truths would be embraced and received into our hearts, and so that our mouths would cry out in faith-filled affirmation that, yes, for us too, God is our refuge and strength, and we will not fear. I'm actually going to invite you to sing this psalm with me. Um, The psalms have been put to common meter uh, in in the Scottish hymnal, and Psalm 46 can be sung to a variety of tunes. It's a really long psalm, so I just selected a couple verses But if you know the tune to O Four A Thousand Tongues, why don't you stand and let's just sing a couple selected verses from uh, from this song. And I'll invite the musicians to come and you guys can continue leading us in song. God is our refuge and our strength in straits of present Yeah. 